Megan Nasty. You are too Megan much. Nasty. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Black and Brown Get Down. Uh, our co-host for today is singing Megan Nasty. Um, but thank you so much for being here, for um, tuning in. Today, we have an amazing episode. I want to just start off by shouting out uh, DJ. DJ won't be joining us for this um, episode. He's actually uh, doing what any good leader does, which is taking care of himself and getting in some really good self-care. And so my homie um, from the Bay, my homie from San Francisco. You see, he's already acting up, y'all. I love it. Uh, he knows what time it is. The black and brown get down. Uh, he is joining us. Uh, Joseph, would you like to introduce yourself, Joe? All right, cool. First and foremost, thank you so much for having me here, my good friend, Mary. Um, glad to be a part of the black and brown get down. Um, been following you for a minute and all of your efforts. So thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of that. A little bit about me. I hail from San Francisco, California, born and raised. Um, on, was city really boy. active. You know, I ain't mean how you feel me. So, um, but now nah, on a serious note, uh, grew up um, under the direction of my pastor at Third Baptist Church in San Francisco, who was really big on activism, um, being that he was a mentee to Martin Luther King. Um, so, grew up hitting the pavement with. NAACP, um, tapped into Young Democrats of America, and then made that transition to Atlanta, Georgia, where I went to Morehouse College, graduated there, came back to the Bay, and just really started trying to hit the pavement, both in my community and then also within uh, health systems out here. Um, So yeah, I'm glad to be here. When I'm not on the clock in corporate America, uh, where I work at a uh, life science division out here in the Bay Area. I'm usually uh, mentoring young young males, um, sitting on different boards and just trying to take in the scenery with my family and loved ones. So thank you for having me. Here's a little bit about me. Oh, and uh, one more thing. Shout out to the noobs, Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. <laughs> I love it. Okay, first of all, I know you grew up in a church because you hit us with that protocol. You said, I am <laughs> under this shepherd. This is, you know, uh, I'm under the cloak of. Uh, so I love it. I love it. I love it. Joe, you've been an amazing friend. I'm so excited because we always, when I come home, turn up and yeah. have a good time. So, um, you know, we're not no, going to we talk go about local. our stories. So we're not going to talk about how I felt at one time. Um, but I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, and one of my first things that I want to talk about is there's some holes in this house. There's holes in this house. Hey. <laughs> okay, no, for real. Right, let's go. Um, Cardi B and uh, Megan The Stallion came out with a song. Wet ass pussy, wop. What do we right, think? Right. I mean, what's up? I mean, when I first, I well, like not this. what do we think, but why are the people going crazy? Why are conservatives? Why are Republicans going crazy? Why are people of a certain age? Um, I'm not even just talking about white people. I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about people who have <laughs> respectability politics. I'm talking about people who really um are upset that WAP is a thing all right so I mean 
I think really what it is, is we're in this pandemic right now. We're in this pandemic right now. People aren't able to move the way they want to move. So oh, they can't get to the WAP. No, nah, they can't get to the WAP. So they, they, you know, they mad. They're mad. Um, you know, we're forced to have a lot of me time. And with that me time um, comes idle time. And we all know what happens under idle time. So people are out here acting as if there wasn't a Trina. Like there wasn't a little Kim that came. Shout out to Trina. Them. Shout out to little Kim. Right, right. You know, I mean, nobody was saying this when Trina was talking about you know Nan, or Lil Kim was talking about how many licks. It's just the fact that you know life or is shut even down. Their counterparts, people. right? Uncle Luke, absolutely. What was Uncle Luke talking about? Uh, I don't know all the songs, but I know for sure he was talking about head, head, and mohead. So, uh, <laughs> and why wasn't that a thing, right? And so it's this right, idea exactly. that there is constantly an issue with women asserting their sexual identities and their full identities, right? right? right. And uh, sexuality is just one part of us. Um, and so it's just, you know, I, I, I'm so, it's old. Like, to me, I'm like, we should be off of this. Like, if you're talking about Black Lives Matter, but you don't, you're not talking about all of the different identities that we carry within those Black lives, right? Absolutely. Uh, One of them being your sexual identity, like, and being able to assert your desire, your, how you want to be treated, right? How you want to um, move in that way. Like, what are we talking about? Right, right. Um, We all have sexual fantasies and, you know, men are able to express their desires, express, you know, how it felt and what have you. But it seems that we don't give women the same platform to have control of their bodies. We're quick to say, oh, you know, um, I met her in a club, said what's up, took it to the crib, you know, I fucked. But we're mad at them (laughs) for saying, hey, you know. I did the same thing. <laughs> like, right. And I Why is that it. a problem? Exactly. Yeah. So then, it, you know, we st- then we start getting into this whole um, conversation about misogyny and how, you Take know, in the 2020, well, you know, I'm not going to go too deep, but, uh, <laughs> you know, in 2020, we're starting to see that women um, are expressing the right that they have, which is ownership. They own their bodies. They own their ideas. Obviously, they own their sexual fantasies. And rather than talking about, oh, WAP is such a horrible song, let's talk about how it in how it is stimulating conversations throughout not just the Black community, but all communities um, that, you know, women sit in where they're talking about public health. Um, is is mine wet? Is it supposed to be this particular way? Mm. Like you know, and and then just Yo, that's you know, real impacting because I that think... whole Go that ahead. whole spectrum um, where women are just really trying to find themselves. That it's more socially acceptable now for women to have this platform. So you know, within that, you're gonna there's gonna be some navigation. And I'm glad that they came out with this video because obviously it's giving women the platform to express their ideas. Um, express their past and you know plan accordingly to move forward. So yeah, and not them. just women, but young girls, Absolutely. young women. You know, women who are coming up. Why do I only hear men talking about sex? Right. Why do I only hear about um, sex in a negative context? Mm-hmm. Why do I? Why am I always receiving? Why am I always in the submissive? Right. And so, I thought this was an excellent song. Uh, 
I mean, and truth be told, it was the song is cool. It's not, yeah, it you is. know, it is. It's, it's 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 not the greatest, and it's just like it's just a cool song. And right, so, absolutely. Um, and if it were a male, it would be a little bit more socially acceptable. I mean, right. I, I ride. You know, I, this morning I went for my little walk, and um, you know, Tooted and Booted came on, Dick Pleaser by by uh, Tiger came on, and mm. I caught myself jamming to it. I'm like, wow, okay, well, if this was Meg or Cardi B, like. <laughs> This would be condemned. But here I am jamming to this, and which I still jam to uh WAP. I mean the beat is the beat is dope. So yeah. I mean it just kind of is what it is. And people just really have to get off themselves and understand that, hey, people want to express what they're going through. People want to stimulate conversations throughout our communities. And women of all people who have cleaned up messes and and been trailblazers for everyone and been the support of everyone throughout society, um, especially black women, you know, give them the give them the the platform, give them the opportunity to have a safe space. And I feel like if we talking about WAP, what about prosecuting the killers of Breonna Taylor? Hello. Come on, somebody. That's <laughs> that's always the real conversation. That's always where I have seen black women take the conversation. You tripping about this, right? About WAP, about wet ass pussy, but you really actually, you know, the more we keep talking about this, the less we're actually talking about what's real, which yes. is what about prosecuting, you yes. know, and uh, also these killers. And right, right. And women in progressiveness. WAP. Oh, hey. <laughs> um, the people had on uh on you know, I'm Salvadorian, so it was like, what uh wet ass pupusas. I'm here for that too. Thank you very much. I'll have my revueltas. Um, thank you very much. Uh so anyway, shout out to Cardi B, shout out to Meg the Stallion. Uh we love you. And Charlemagne is so whack. I don't know. What's I, I mean, he was. They were on a Breakfast Club, and I felt like he was the one who asked her, uh, <laughs> "As a mother, do your lyrics uh, change?" I, I mean, I've never had heard him ask a father, "Like, yeah. do your lyrics change?" Because, right, right. You know, you're a father now, so whatever. Um, they pulled up some of the lyrics because, like, that whole. I'm looking at it now. I want to gag. I want to choke. Like, this is shit that men say. Men like. You know, I'm. I, excuse me. I can't speak for all men, but you know, in, in, in my encounters, in my enta- encounters, or should I say, entanglements, I shit. I want to gag you. I want to choke you. I want to spank you. I want to do all of that. Like that just is what it is. But the moment a woman says anything about it, it's oh no no don't say that. You know, you got to be ladylike. Well, let what's ladylike? That sounds more in 2020. That sounds more of uh the language an oppressor would use you know um to try to hold someone down so here we are in 2020 and we're saying okay they can't say this kind of stuff but we can we can go ahead and perform these actions with them and brag about it to our homeboys but we be damned if she says anything or says what she likes or says hey you know might turn her head in the midst of, you know, your little encounter and say, hey, pull my hair. Like, 
Hell yeah. Thank and you. And everything that we've been taught as women, everything that we've been taught as black and brown women is you got to cook. Mm-hmm. You got to clean. You got to be um, quiet. Hold your head down. Quiet. And, well, and not even quiet, but you got to know your position. Right, right, right. Right. Because now the position is a power couple, but uh, you still, you power couple, but you're not equals. You right, know? exactly. You got to kind of play your up, position. And we mess up this whole meaning of submissiveness. Like, we're not mm-hmm. saying she got to submit to everything you do. We're just saying, hey, as the man, you take the lead. She's your she's your counterpart. Like my woman ain't behind me. My woman is inside of me. I'm, I might speak up, but guess what? She in my ear telling me what to say. So really, she's navigating us at the same time. So we can't really get what they say. Oh, song. you the head, but I'm the neck. So right. that neck falls, <laughs> that whole shit gonna come exactly. down. Exactly. You know, exactly. and um, and I think those things just don't even exist anymore. But it is a trip because we have been taught to be very specific, right? Play your position mm-hmm. in public, but in the house, you can be a hoe. Mm-hmm. You could be a freak. You could, you know, and all of these things. Right. But, right. So. You oh you just don't want nobody to know about that, but it's already it's a known fact. But guess yeah. what? Um, like what is the problem? You right. know, so right. uh Cardi says you actually don't need to cook or clean, uh, because you can still get the ring without cooking and cleaning. Oh, yeah. And uh and I'm saying, yeah, you don't need to cook or clean. Uh, and if you want to keep buying food, that's cool. But guess what? For us single women. That motherfucker may never come. <laughs> that and we got to think about <laughs> and that may not be your desires. Right. Guess what? We may still want to cook. Right. We may still want our shit not to be raggedy. Right. And we may you still might, want it to be clean. Right. And you might not want to be submissive. You might want to be out here in the streets, and that is your business. You are entitled right. to that. And let's not well, act Tabitha like said, men because that's my business. Right. And act like <laughs> men, let's not act like men don't trick off every single day. Like I was in Morehouse College, literally across the street from Spelman College. So when we were okay. You know, freshman year, we're like, uh-huh. okay, cool. Spelman girls get up. Man, they they released. They got visitation now. So we, you know, crossing that parking lot. And what do we see? Unbeknownst to us, it's men pulling up in their Mercedes and everything, looking for an opportunity to take these women out. So what are they supposed to do? Not not accept uh, You was on gifts? foot, though, like, huh? <laughs> right. All right, for real. I'm on foot. So, I mean, hey, you know, now that I'm in you hindsight, the game a little like bit differently. To, yeah, in hindsight, she had to do. <laughs> I can't stand I want my tuition paid for Student loans ain't no joke. So, yeah. Listen, I can't stand you. I love you. And we're going to have to move on because right, we can bet. stay on this topic forever. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's actually so critical that Cardi continue to move and raise culture in such a way where she is a free person. So next. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you got to get her on a black and brown get down for sure. We got to get Cardi. She's sitting at home. Yeah, she's sitting at home. Cardi. Oh my God, fam, <laughs> Cardi, my girl, mi gente, come through. We're jumping into our Black Love Brown Pride segment. Today, we have such a sweet surprise. We have Abdul Aziz with us. He is a freelance uh, New Orleans-based photographer. He is also a filmmaker. And um, 
Yeah, we're going to learn so much about all of the things. I mean, over the last couple of uh, days in prepping for this interview, uh, I have gone down so many rabbit holes in uh, doing some of some of the uh, research, but I'm excited. You, uh, Abdul also has an award-winning uh, documentary called Member of the Club. It's a film about the Black debutante uh, society and culture here in New Orleans, and uh, he is global. He has been uh, to so many parts um, in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and um, we are excited to uh, talk to you today and learn from you. Welcome, Abdul. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to jump right into conversation. So okay. whenever you're ready. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we kind of... Um, uh, the, our base of listeners, uh, you know, we all over the place. So you got to sometimes break some things down to us and we'll ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, sure. But let's start with uh, what are your earliest memories of community and um, that you draw from? And then whose spirit do you bring into this work? So this is an interesting question for me. So originally I'm from New York, uh, Brooklyn. Um, also lived in Jersey City for a while and in a little town called Tina. Back in 89, um, there was an event that, that, that occurred. Uh, it was the, the murder of Yusuf Hawkins. And in New York, that's a moment, kind of a watershed moment that, that really helped me understand my identity, helped me understand my blackness. It was the first time that I saw a community rallying around an issue that uh, was important. The first time I saw kind of a collective sense of anger um, and a collective sense of, uh, uh, of frustration uh, being voiced. Um, I was nine years old at the time, so I didn't really have a complete understanding of what was happening, but I do remember the mobilization around the death of Yusuf Hawkins, uh, which took place in Vincenthurst, New York. I'm sure uh, a lot of people are familiar with the story. Yusuf Hawkins was a young man who visited the wrong neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, Vincenthurst, which was a predominantly uh, Italian uh, white working class neighborhood. He was there to visit uh, a young white woman and um, unfortunately got caught up uh, in a situation where uh, the people in the neighborhood didn't like that and they uh, ultimately murdered him. Um, I remember that pain. I remember seeing the pain in my parents' faces. I remember kind of the, 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 the frustration that was felt, especially in, in New York in the 80s. Uh, it was a very different place than what it is now. Um, so tensions were high already. Uh, and this just kind of escalated to a point of pushing us uh, towards action. So I remember the first time I was out in the street was when I was nine years old. I remember distinctly seeing, you know, Sharpton leading the way, you know, he was a, he was a kind of a caricature, you know, in the eighties, uh, you know, he's in his track suit, you know, kind of leading the protest. And, and, and here I was nine years old, kind of, you know, in the background on the sidelines watching, but understanding for the first time that like potentially my life might be in danger um, because of white supremacy. And that's kind of the first time my parents really had a conversation with me and talked to me about, uh, the implications of racism um, and the potential impact that it might have on my life. So that was really the first real community moment that I felt. It was the moment yeah. that um, was kind of uh, set me on a path for, for justice, really. Um, even at nine years old, I knew that this was, was something that, that had to be addressed and that it would be something that would affect me moving forward in my life. Wow. Um... That's uh, something that I think, you know, 
I think about uh, that in my therapy a lot, like little Mary, right? And uh, and how little Mary is still even present in the work that I do now. And I'm sure that that is um, very much the case with that moment that you described. Um, who's in terms of, uh, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, our mothers and sort of the... Uh, that energy and, you know, motherland and sort of this more maternal uh, spirits. And for some folks, it's not that, but I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of like spirit, whose spirit do you bring into this work? Um, Sure. Yeah, Yeah. no, I think that um, there are a lot of influences. I think ancestral, um, since I'm a big person on ancestor um, recognition, um, you know, of course, my parents, uh, who are still with us, they had a, a tremendous role to play in shaping and molding who I've become as a person um, and kind of the trajectory that my life has taken in general as it relates to being a justice-oriented individual. Um, but I really, it goes even farther back than that. You know, my mm-hmm. my um, great-grandfather was actually an immigrant here uh, who moved from West Africa um, and ended up landed in Alabama, actually, right outside of Mobile, mm. Alabama. But he was an ardent member of the UNIA, uh, University mm. of Negro Association. So he was close friends with Garvey. He was close friends with uh, 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 a lot of the people in the movement in Florida. Florida, There was a, uh, a woman named uh, Laura, Adorka, Ador- Laura Adorka Kofi, and she was Ghanaian, a Ghanaian immigrant. Um, and they were all working extremely closely together to build this kind of black empire and build black wealth yeah. and, and collective economics, you know, under, under Garvey. Um, and eventually I think they ended up splitting as a lot of people do, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but nonetheless, like the things that he was doing in Southern Alabama at the time were just like unheard of phenomenal. He was bringing these radical, uh, you know, outspoken Africans and black people to these small rural areas of Alabama to hold these massive rallies for black people to build them up in the 1920s. And, you know, it yeah, ultimately, ultimately like separatist mu- movement, right? Like, and ultimately it re- it resulted in like, you know, a lot of, uh, retribution from the KKK, mm-hmm. you know, houses were burned down, people's lives were threatened people were almost lynched and all of this, but nonetheless, my great grandfather stood, stood his ground and, uh, stayed there and managed to, despite all odds at that time, build a financial empire that like for black people was unheard of. And he purchased mm. a significant plot of land and right outside of Mobile and shared that land up amongst black people in the truest form of kind of this pan-African slash like um, collective economics uh, uh, happening. So I really feel like, and I've always, you know, before I even knew my great grandfather's story, I've been attracted to uh, Garvey. And this is how I, before my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, I brought this up and this is when she told me all this information, you know, she was like, well, your great grandfather was like this, you know what I mean? So I was like, wow, you know, this is like the best gift I could have ever gotten. And then she's like, <laughs> you a whole me, legacy out here. Huh? Right, right, right. <laughs> and like, she's like showing me like stock, like stock certificates that were issued from UNIA for the black star line that like she had, you know what I mean? So it was, it was like a really, important moment for me right to be like oh because while my parents are justice oriented they're not out in the streets they're not the ones that are like trying to really like combat it in the same way necessarily that i am by by putting my body on the line or like being out in the streets in fact it like terrifies them but at the same time you know knowing that legacy that familial legacy is is tremendous and the same goes that's on my father's side and the same goes on my mother's side of the family 
all the women in my family are just the most badass, like hardcore, like don't play around women in the world. You know what I mean? Like you know, straight out of New York, straight out of New York, like you might get shanked if you step out of line. You know what right. I mean? It's like that spirit is inside of me and 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 my mother instilled that in me to ensure that like I felt confident no matter what. I'm an only child too, so mm. I didn't have a lot of interaction outside of uh my family because we lived while while I I didn't go to school in the same community I lived in. So I went my mother taught in Jersey City schools. So I ended up building all my friendships there. So when I went back home to where we were living, I didn't have that same friend friend base necessarily. And this is also 1980s, 19 early 1990s New York. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're not just out in the street. My parents were pretty protective of me. So but um you know, it was, it, it's, that's, that's what's molded me. That's kind of what's given me the the zeal and uh, the the will to move forward in ways that like make it impact just to see the the potential change and impact that the community can, can experience. You know, a lot of people to this day are living on land plots that my great grandfather helped facilitate, you know, I mean, ha- happening in the, in the middle of rural white Alabama, which is crazy. Mm. So, yeah, I love that. What? Uh, and I know Joe wants to ask a question. Look, I see you. <laughs> but uh, tell us your grandpa's name, if you don't mind, so that we can make sure that spirit is with us along. Yeah, actually, uh, his name is Shaka. Actually, his name was Shaka. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Baba Shaka, let's go. Oh man, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Um, so tell us about how a conflict journalist will cover uprisings versus how a documentarian will cover it. And um, also with that, tell us how you experienced as a, it as a black man covering these uprisings. Right. So it's interesting. This question is important to me because I am a documentarian initially by 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 trade. And uh, I started making documentaries back in. I hustled my way, I should say, into being a documentary filmmaker back in like 98, 99. I got my first gig. I kind of like just, you know, hustled my way into it. Told somebody I could do something, didn't have any equipment, got like a check and then bought the equipment and then like started doing it. Flash forward, like the next year I'm shooting a documentary on Mount Everest, like literally, you know what I mean? It was the first Mm. major thing. Travel Channel picked it up. It was a really big deal. Um, and I was fortunate to have that experience. Um, I say that to say I learned a lot in, through that experience. You know, I learned how to and how not to uh, go into communities, right? There was this instance um, where uh, in Nepal, we were in Nepal and we were filming before we left Kathmandu. There was a, a, a monk having a ceremony and like, you know, a very, very important Buddhist ceremony. And like, here I go with my camera, 21 years old, you know what I mean? Like stepping right into like the middle of stuff, you know what I mean? And the monk stopped his practice and was like, no, get out. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh man, you know? And that taught me a lot about the way that you interact with community. Oftentimes in this industry, especially documentary filmmaking, um, there's more of a, I don't want to say standoffish uh, approach. It's kind of more of an observation. And it's the same as, as conflict journalism as well. However, I promised myself that as a documentarian early on, I never would make a mistake like that again, right? I want to show up in places. I don't want to show up with a camera for the first time. I want mm-hmm. you to know who I am. I want to have conversations with you. I want to know about your family. I want to know about your life. Um, I've taken those same hard lessons that I've had to learn over the years from being a documentary filmmaker and I've applied them to certain aspects of my conflict photography. Um, conflict photography in particular is uh, is very difficult, right? Like it's, it's one of the things that 
you have to be sensitive about because you're walking already. You're automatically walking into a hot spot. You're automatically walking into something that is, uh, there's some form of conflict, right? It says it in its name. Um, so therefore you have to be sensitive to the way that you photograph. You have to be sensitive to the way that you represent specific communities because your work can be taken, uh, for good or for bad. And it can have adverse consequences for the individuals and the subjects that you're shooting. Um, so I really try to approach conflict journalism, um, especially as it relates to my community here, you know, having done, uh, conflict journalism all over the world, having had opportunities to step into communities and, become part of those communities for the short periods of time that I was there by connecting with people directly, by connecting with their issue directly, by experiencing their issues directly, um, really um, is, is, is the only way for me, right? I, I understand that sometimes we are, as photojournalists, conflict photojournalists and war photographers, sometimes we are the only record to atrocities mm -hmm. that might, may not have an opportunity to be, to see the light of day otherwise, right? So there are so many moving parts in conflict journalism and war photography. Uh, you know, there are, are instances, I mean, when you're in these situations, you're in the situation. You're not just a fly on the wall. You may feel like it, but you're there too. You're also susceptible to being shot. You're also yeah. susceptible to being tear gassed, which I've been multiple times. Um, wow. You know, so it's like, I think having that level of involvement, that level of engagement, but also it being my community, especially around the body of work that I just recently produced around the BLM protest in the past few months, um, and particularly in New Orleans, the place that I I lay my head at night. Um, it is really important. It's important for me to represent my community in a way that that uplifts them, that supports the narrative uh, that we know to be true, um, right. that uh, can potentially affect change. And that's what the essence of conflict photography should be. Mm. Um, now, in my field, I've been fortunate enough to build a team of individuals that that I've traveled the world with, uh, that I've stepped into these hotspots with. Um, hotspots like Ferguson, hotspots like Charlottesville, hotspots like, you know, the Gaza Strip. You know, the, I have a, a crew of photographers that we typically travel together to make sure that we're good, right? And we can also work in these environments, but they all have that same level of respect for the community. They all have that same level of zeal for justice. Now, on the flip side of that, there are individuals who out there, of course, being in all of these conflict zones, it's a media circus. You get to see every and anybody mm -hmm. that, that you can imagine, right? You know, I've, I've shot alongside Christian Amanpour. I've, I've shot alongside, you know, <laughs> Don Lemon. I've seen every, all of these people. I've seen them all in the field while we're covering these specific issues. And it's fascinating to watch the way that they operate and the way that they choose to engage with community uh, and how, how long they choose to engage with community, right? You have people who are there specifically for the thrill of war and conflict. You have people who are there specifically because they're getting a paycheck. And then you have the photographers who ain't making no money like me and my friends <laughs> who are like documenting it and making sure that we have a solid record of everything that occurs, everything that happens in these moments. Um, I know I'm going long on this one, but oh, uh, I love uh, it. Yeah. a perfect example of that would be on the bridge when, and the Crescent City connection here in New Orleans, when we were all tear gassed, um, you know, it was a moment I think that was shocking for me because I'm used to conflict worldwide, but I'm, I've never, mm. I won't say I never expected it because I mean, I'm just, I've 
this is America. And of course, <laughs> I pretty much understand like my position as a black man in America, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. so, um, but it was shocking to see it in my own hometown to have guns pointed at me by police officers, which I captured in great detail and stunning clarity. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> primarily because I just wanted to make sure that like who the identification of these individuals who decided to point a gun at a journalist were, right? Like for identification purposes, I'd say that. But um Baba Shaka was like, nah, I gotta say it's like some of my clearest work. I was pretty happy. But, but um yeah it was it was it was it was shocking to see that it was shocking to feel that but i knew that like okay what am i gonna what am i gonna capture what am i gonna capture how am i gonna capture it is this going to endanger the individuals that are in this picture right there's a lot a lot of conversation around especially since the blm protests have started around the ethics and photographing faces right and putting work out that could potentially be used against individuals in our community and organizers and we know that in this country there's a tremendous legacy of activists being targeted and Mm -hmm and being identified and being discredited and, you know, COINTELPRO type stuff, right? So we, um, you know, it's it's difficult. It's difficult, especially when I know these are people that I, 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 I'm accountable to everyone that I photograph and every conflict that I go to, but I am particularly held accountable in my own community, right? And I should be, as I should be as a photographer right. worldwide, no matter where I am, but particularly in the community that I've chosen to be a part of, that I've been allowed to be a part of as a transplant here in New Orleans. So, you know, it was, it was difficult. And, uh, but the way that I approach that is by consent, right? It's when I take these photographs, I talk to the individuals in those photographs and I ask, I say, is it okay if I share this photograph? Is it okay if I publish this photograph? And sometimes I fall short of that. There have been instances even recently where I've fallen short of that and like it immediately comes back. So like, those, lef- those lessons as a photographer, as a documentarian, will always continue to present themselves. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that we can do as journalists, as photographers, as filmmakers, is ensure that we hold ourselves accountable when those issues are brought to us by individuals and that we rectify what are, in whatever ways that we can, we rectify that, that, that grievance or we push and strive to make sure that there aren't any grievances in the first place. Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah. man, this is such serious and important work. Thank you so much for it. Uh, I didn't know what conflict photography was prior to this conversation. And I know, you know, I see your your photos and I'm like, oh yeah, like that's, I mean, just the, uh, how serious the discipline is, right? And all that it's involved in uh, actually capturing those shots, being in those moments, being, you know, safe uh, and telling that story and also, you know, sort of um, questioning and and asking the questions. um, I mean, and, you know, in the frames, in who you photograph and how you photograph them, it's uh, beautiful. And and so thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I got it. I told you, I got a chance to watch uh, war photography. Uh, and I was like, where do I find this film? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I had the bootleg hook up if you need it. But you yeah, know. no, it's, at, <laughs> like, it's through, you can do it through the public library system. Nice, um, 
And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you've covered so many places that you talked about already. Uh, One of them most recently, you talked about that experience um, through um, the uprisings and BLM protests. Uh, I also want to just hear more about um, the your coverage in Charlottesville and how that changed you both uh, and if it did professionally and personally. And then, you know, also we all experience white nationalism and have experienced the rise of that to a different extent. And then what specific insight, you know, I'm sure it's different than like you're covering it, you know, on the street in person. And so when I hear you say, oh, I'm asking folks like, can I take your picture? I'm, I'm just imagine what that conversation is like with someone who who hates you, right? Someone who has contempt for your life, someone who um, does not want to see you alive. And so would love to just hear more about about that um, experience in Charlottesville. Sure. So Charlottesville was really interesting. Um, so let me give you a little bit of background on my kind of work around white supremacy and specifically documenting white supremacy. I am a prepper. I am a person who has been watching um, the rise of white nationalism and fascism in the United States. Probably, it really shook me after the election of Barack Obama, um, kind of the response. And and I don't know if you remember, but the Tea Party was the thing then, right? Like, Mm -hmm. kind of immediately after uh, Barack Obama was elected, um, there was a overwhelming backlash and kind of an organization, um, ground roots organization Mm -hmm. effort, um, effort. Uh, that was led by a group of people who wanted to ridiculously name themselves after the Boston Tea Party. Um, That essentially uh, grew into a larger international kind of resurgence of fascism worldwide, right? In England, we saw groups like uh, the English Defense League uh, spring up, which they'd been around for a while, but we saw their activity become stronger. Um, I don't know if you remember in New York back in 2010, there was a ground zero mosque controversy where uh, they had some individuals come. I went there to document this. This is the first time I went to document kind of the the Tea Party and and kind of the rise of fascism and white supremacy. And uh, there was a gentleman named Geert uh, Wilters uh, from Holland who was a staunch anti-Islamic person, um, to say the least, Um, and Pamela Geller, who was also on the same, same tip. So being in those moments, being in uh, downtown Manhattan, the financial district and covering this protest and seeing the vitriol that was being spit uh, from multiple segments of society, it was actually shocking, right? It wasn't just white people at the time, but they were spitting this white supremacist like rhetoric, like towards the, you know, stop the Islamization of America, stop the Islamization of Europe, kind of, you know, people were wilding out about it. Um, But it, it felt even deeper. It just felt that there was this idea of brand politics and and race politics that were being played that weren't necessarily being spoken in the same way that they are just bluntly said today. Um, But I could tell that something was wrong. I came back very, very shook by that. And and there was a growing rise in anti-immigrant sentiment as well um, that was very concerning for me. We'd already seen kind of the exploitation of immigrant workers here in New Orleans um, during post-Katrina. Um, specifically day workers. Um, we saw kind of the use of, of, of them in ways that was exploitative and um, evil. Um, so all of that, the rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, the, uh, the rise of uh, anti-Islamic sentiment, the rise of anti-Blackness as a response to the yeah. first Black president of the United States, 
really shook me. Um, so over the course of the next 10 years, uh, seven years really, because that was in 2010, I really kind of dedicated my, myself to doing a lot of research, deeply embedding myself like behind the scenes in white supremacist networks, um, joining sites like Stormfront and posing as white supremacist myself, um, getting an opportunity to really like dig into it, right? So when the opportunity to go to Charlottesville came up, I contacted, immediately hit up all my photographer friends that I told you about. And I was like, hey guys, look, this is really gonna pop off. I don't think that people really realize what's going on. Prior to that, let me back up just a little bit. The months prior to Charlottesville, I'd been documenting here in New Orleans, the removal of the Confederate monuments. Um, and I think we all had an opportunity to see how much hate uh, was behind uh, the anti-removal uh, idea, right? So we saw organizations and groups uh, pop up around town, like the Monumental Task Commission, that's composed of some of the, the craziest white supremacists in the city who masquerade as, as businessmen and, uh, and uh, radio hosts of, of popular television or uh, radio shows here. Um, and we saw kind of like this extreme anti, this extreme desire to not, you know, remove these vestiges of, of white inferiority or supremacy as they like to call it. Um, so I, I'd been moving around in those circles and, and, and working a lot within those white supremacist networks to have a deeper understanding uh, from a journalism standpoint of who they were. Um, shortly after the monument process was done here, I also went down to, uh, to Houston. There was a, a fake Antifa page, Antifa, whoever they are, um, <laughs> uh, which doesn't really exist. Being anti-fascist just means you're anti-fascist. There is no, nobody's receiving a check from George Soros as is the conspiracy theory with, with most on the right. Um, but uh, I went to uh, Houston to cover a monument removal. They, uh, they called it, this is Texas. And they mobilized thousands of people, armed people with weaponry and, you know, and of course every possible group could show up. So there are three segments and I'm, I know I'm, going all over the place. But there are three segments of, of, of people that I split kind of the white nationalist slash kind of white identity. Come on, groupie. Folks, Yo, the right? book, when's the book coming out? That's, <laughs> or, I mean, yeah, maybe it's a film, but because now we're know. categorizing. We'll I'm, I'm here right, for it. Right, right. So there's uh, what we, I would call the patriots, right? And the patriots are individuals who kind of align themselves with the traditional uh, ideas of what it means to be a patriot in the United States, right? To love your country, fly your flag, to, to bear, to have the right to bear arms, to freedom of speech, all of that good stuff. So there's an organization called the Three Percenters, which are a militia. They've been popping up a lot mm. recently. Um, they were the ones who really threw that, that rally in Houston. Uh, they were the primary organizers. Now there's a second category of individuals who are, are, Racists who don't want to be categorized as racist, but they're staunch, staunch support, supporters of the Confederacy, right? Those are the people that we saw here in New Orleans during the Confederate monument removal process. Um, the ones who are really going flat, you know, hard. They're the ones who fly their Confederate flags on their trucks. They're the mm -hmm. ones who say heritage, not hate. You know, they push this narrative uh, that, is, that tends to seduce some of the, the, the other segments of society who don't really want to be racist publicly, but like, you know, deep down inside that they're racist. Um, but they're really pro-Confederate, pro-history, right? And then you just have your straight-up white supremacists and white nationalists and Nazis, right, for, for lack of a better word. 
Um, these are the individuals who will call you, a, uh, well, call you the N-word to your face uh, or whatever other slur they can come up with, which I have to say over the years of, of dealing with them, they're quite creative um, <laughs> at times. And sometimes I'm like, wow, you guys really thought that one out, huh? <laughs> um, so uh, these are your more intense, more hardcore, core, considered to be the far right, considered to be the alt-right, considered to be neo-Nazis, KKK. Just people who don't give a shit, right? They're the ones who are out here saying, die, nigga. You know what I mean? Like, and like, we'll say it to your face and they don't care. They just don't care. Um, now, all three of those elements were at that Sam Houston uh, mm. Park event. And it was interesting to see the way that they all played off of one another, right? So the Patriots refused to talk to the Confederate, mind, to the Confederate folks. Mm. They told them, get that flag out of here. This is Texas. We're flying the Texas flag. We're patriots, American and Texas flags only, right? So they ended up having the Confederates kind of cordoned off into their own section, right? Where they, and the Confederates couldn't leave this section. The larger were the patriots, then you had a smaller contingent of Confederates. Then out of nowhere, the white nationalists and neo-Nazis showed up, right? Like Sieg Heiling doing the entire thing. Wow. They got in a fight with the patriots. The patriots beat some of them up. And then the patriots... Uh, demanded that the police cordon off the white supremacists. So there are like these three separate segments and I'm like jumping around between all of them. So uh, the reason I'm giving you this preference is because a lot of the people that I met or that I saw in Charlottesville, I also met at, in, in this, at this mm. Houston event. One of them being a gentleman named Asmador, who was one of the primary organizers of uh, Unite the Right, which ultimately has been deemed Charlottesville. So uh, the first night that I got there, I flew there with another journalist friend of mine. His name is uh, CJ Hunt. He actually uh, is a producer for a daily show now. Um, and we showed up together. Uh, he found that I was going about a day before uh, here in New Orleans. He met me on Poland Avenue at a coffee shop. He was like, hey, can I just go with you? And I was like, I don't know, bro. You ready for this? Like, this is about to be a, this is gonna be a show, brother. Like, so he was like, yeah, man, I'm down. So we flew in. Uh, rented a car together and drove in. We got into town uh, and it was close to evening. Prior to that big torch rally that everybody's very familiar with, the Tiki torch rally that, that where they were walking around chanting, you will not replace us, all that stuff. There was a big kind of interfaith service at a church. So when that was over, we decided to walk down to try to find, we got caught, caught wind that this torch rally was about to begin. So we walked about a quarter of a mile away uh, to a park where they had all gathered. And, and as soon as I, the park sat down kind of in a, a, a small valley type area. So it wasn't immediately clear how many people were there. But the minute we crested the hill, you could see thousands of people. Mm. And they were just starting to light the torches. And, and I just watched, I remember distinctly watching hundreds to thousands of torches just like lined up. This line just began, like the light fire just started like snaking through this, this park. And it was like... Mm. Shocking. So, of course, <clears throat> most journalists were standoffish. They were standing up at the top of the hill. Nobody wanted to get anywhere near these guys. I was like, nah. <laughs> like, so I just jumped down. I was like the first person to run over there. I jumped straight in the <laughs> middle of it. When I get down there, one of the two, three of the guys that re recognized me from Houston, and they were like, at the time, I, I wrote a piece or I'd been published in the Atlantic. Some of my photos had been published in the Atlantic. And um, so they called me. They didn't remember my name, but they called me Atlantic. And they're like, it's Atlantic. Come here. Come on over here. Get your pictures. Get what you need. Blah, 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 blah. Like, they were actually excited uh, for me to, like, take wow. photographs of them, which is a really bizarre thing. 
<laughs> I have a tendency to really be able to like disarm people, even though I'm completely anti everything that they are. Um, they tend to be curious, right? Like they don't understand how I can understand so much of who they are. Uh, of course, they don't understand that I've been covertly working against them for the past 10 years in their <laughs> same channel. So that's how I know their lingo and their talk. But I'll say things, I'll say little things that are, are disarming to them, right? And around that time, a lot of the troll culture, uh, internet troll culture, mm. was kind of at the height. So they they created this uh, concept. Listen, hold on. These uh, people are getting a whole lesson today. Right. <laughs> listen, <laughs> dates. I mean, Man, listen, me you are too. getting. So when we drop that cash app, y'all, or yeah. y'all better hit that account. Because, listen, people didn't know what war for, I mean, uh, conflict photography was. You're giving a whole breakdown on, uh, you know, the different uh, three percenters. He didn't say five percenters. That's a whole different thing. Right. But yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just blown. So, <laughs> no, so, so they, they recognize me. They give me the opportunity to walk with them. Give me an opportunity. I just took the opportunity, whether they're going to give it to me or not. But so I, I marched alongside of them. And of course, I'm getting jeered. Like all these white boys are like tripped out. They're like, what is this black man doing in the middle of us? Like right now, like, don't you know where you are? Don't you see all these people around you saying you, you will not replace us? And like mm-hmm. see hiling and being Nazis and all of this shit. And like, I didn't care. I was, I'm just not affected. I'm not affected by it. So when I go into the field, like I try to fortify myself spiritually, right? Like I kind of look mm. for guidance in my tradition. Like I'm Sufi, so like I see guidance in my tradition um, to for protection, right? And I believe fully that I'll be protected. And if I'm not, then that's what what it was meant to be in my mind. So I fortify myself, and like you know, I'm I'm out here in this in this this moment, and these guys are like tripped out. They're just tripped out. But I just start snapping photos. I start documenting them. Um, I've never seen anything like it. It was kind of the culmination and kind of validation of all the things that I had been preparing for for the past decade, right? Like really having a a deeper understanding of how large this movement is because a lot of times over the past 10 years, you've heard people say, oh, these are the fringe elements of society. This is not mainstream. This is not the mainstream kind of like thought process, right? And while that might've been true years ago, I think this, this watershed moment in history that is now known as Charlottesville clearly shows that this is not just on the fringes, right? And that this isn't, this is another thing that we used to hear often. Oh, they're all, all the racists are getting old and die. Like white people love to say that. Like the racists are, are getting older and they're gonna die off soon, right? No, these are all kids. These are, are honestly 17, 18, 19 to 30 year old demographic, right? Who were there, who were hardcore, who were ready to spill blood, who were ready to shed blood and ultimately did, who ultimately did kill someone the next day. So the next morning um, was the official rally, which which was held uh, in a park. So just as a little bit of background, Charlottesville, the entire reason that everybody showed up there was also a Confederate removal process, right? There was a, a uh, statue of Robert E. Lee that was going to be torn or was slotted for removal. Um, and this was their response to it. However, uh, individuals like Richard Spencer, uh, who coined the phrase alt-right, um, Augustus Invictus, who ultimately ended up being a lawyer uh, representing someone who sued me uh, that, that we could discuss later. Um, uh, these are kind of the mainstream voices of the alt-right, the mainstream voices of we're tired, we're fed up, we want a white ethno state, we want a white future for our children, the 14 words, which 
you know, is essentially paraphrasing, we must secure an existence for our children and white people, right? Like that's, they live by this 1488, this, this war cry, that's their war cry. Um, they're the ones who organize this big event. So we get there and now my whole crew is there, right? And we're all documenting different aspects of, of, of that day. Uh, as soon as I got out of the car, um, you know, we, we ran into individuals who were hardcore neo-Nazis. We're talking about like the, the farthest of the far right, right? We're talking about people who were proudly donning their KKK patches, people who were parts of the National Socialist Movement, people who were parts of uh, Identity Europa, which is a, uh, a, a very slick, modern, exciting millennial movement for white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they wear suits, they, you know, have their fashion haircut, they like are all about the aesthetic um, and also about dispelling the myth that, you know, these are just backwoods com- country bumpkins that are old racists. They're like, oh no, we city slickers. No, no, we're from Boston, we're from New York, <laughs> we're from Oregon, we're, we're from all these different places, you know what I mean? Um, and that was really interesting to see. It was interesting to see that mm. mobilization, the traditional work, traditionalist workers party, um, the Kekistani movement, which is a fictional land of Pepe the Frog, one of those troll memes, right? Like it's crazy all the stuff they come up with. So anyway, that happens. And that's when the violence, violence broke out. We started seeing, uh, clashes, uh, with people on the left, uh, with them, and the Virginia State Police uh, stood by and watched. They let it all happen. Mm. It was a vi- It was one of the most violent. Saying this as a war photographer is pretty significant because I've been shot at plenty of times. This was one of the most violent moments I've ever seen in history. Um, wow. It was reminiscent of what happened to individuals after they crossed that bridge in Selma. It was reminiscent of, of watching fascists beat people in the streets in Eastern Europe. Uh, which has been happening over the past decade, right? And watching people like the English Defense League in, in the UK beat their beat people senseless. It was just pure violence. It was pure violence. Yeah. We were all tear gas. People were pepper sprayed. Somebody, you know, and ultimately at the end of the day, you know, someone was killed by their car. I remember very clearly um, James Field, who had been in New Orleans for the Confederate uh monument removals. He's a part of a group called the League of the South, which is a Southern nationalist organization, an organization that believes in the recreation and the, the, the uprising of the, of the second civil war, essentially, um, and the recreation of a Confederate state. Um, it's, it was shocking. It was shocking to see and watch people hit and wounded mm. and die and watch Heather Heyer die that day mm. um, in front of all of our eyes. Um, that's when I, I realized it was no longer a joke. I realized it was no longer the fringe elements of society. Um, it just validated all of the things that I was afraid of uh, happening. I just saw it come to fruition in that day. Yeah. Wow, man. So you talked about this span of emotions. You talked about deranged, um, both here in the U.S. and then outside of the U.S. How do you process after being in the street shooting? You know, that's an interesting question. I've really not had a support network outside of my photographer friends who do the same work, right? Because it's, all, it's really difficult. And I know a lot of people hear that from soldiers when they return from war, right? They're like, oh, like, you guys don't understand because we have PTSD. And like, I think that's true. You know, I think a lot of us can't even fathom what it means to be in war, what it means to experience, what it, experience war, what it means to 
taste blood on your tongue like when something is going on like where there are a lot of there's a lot of death and, and horror around you right so traditionally the only way i've been able to process is to build a network of, of individuals that i can look to um, and have those conversations with however what's changed this time and what was so significant to me that i was on a bridge in my community with my people the people that i love that i was looking out for at this with the same level of fear and like like you know, concern for, um, cause there are people I love on that bridge at the same time when we got tear gas. Any of us could have fallen off that bridge that night. We were mm-hmm. all blinded. The mm-hmm. real, the railings are, are like three feet or something like that. Yeah. The wow. fact that no one fell off of that bridge and died is amazing. It's amazing. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to see that happening in your hometown. It's hard to mm-hmm. see that happening to the people that you love. Um, I have been so fortunate after that to have the community that I do, to have received the amount of love, the amount of support, the amount of checking in from individuals, people that I didn't meet until that day, mm-hmm. you know, who have become so critical and so important in my healing process. Because this work is hard. Like, yeah. I, I internalize so much of this work. I internalize so much of this work. Let me just say that again. Um, it's hard some days just to get out of bed, right? Like it's hard to go into a field or to a place like Charlottesville and be called nigger repeatedly, right? Mm-hmm. Without being able to knock somebody's teeth out, which is what my first response really wants to be, right? But like to know that like I'm in this moment beyond myself to bear witness and to provide a record of this time of my community of what we're going through as black and brown people in this country, um, what we're subjected to. Um, it's greater than the anger that boils up inside of me. So when I internalize that work, I'll come home. And like I said, there are days I can't leave bed. There are days where it's the only thing that I can think about is this person saying these types of mm-hmm. things to me or the danger that I was in or cops pointing guns at me or cops threatening to shoot me directly in my face, which is what happened with the New Orleans police department here. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a way to process, but my community has stepped up. They've, they've provided resources. They've, brought me food. They've like, you know, they've done the things that I feel, you know, for the first time, a community really should be doing for all of us. We should all be returning. We should all be reciprocating those types of actions, especially in the difficult times that we're living in now through a pandemic and a potential like race war. You know what I mean? I think that like, we have to talk about how serious this situation is. Yeah, Um, Charlottesville was three years ago, I guess, right? Three years ago, three years ago. Last week. Yeah. Wow. Years ago, last week. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank you. And big ups to your community for uh, showing up in, in these particular ways for you. Um, you know, to that, um, you know, here in New Orleans, you actually uh, uncovered some, you know, uh, to your point, these are people who are on the radio. These are people who, you know, may live next door to you, who you see at the grocery store. And these are people who teach you. For those of you who don't remember, Nicholas Dean was a principal at Crescent Leadership Academy here in New Orleans. Um, you photographed him wearing uh, his uh, Nazi, um, you know, 
regalia whatever yeah regalia uh nothing regal about that shit Um, (laughs) and um you know like my sis said you about to lose your job and fan lost his job and as he should have he should have never been in our community right and uh he should have never been around our children and our young people uh and uh he sued you Right, he did. So I found Nicholas Dean to be a particularly egregious character in this in this movement, in his movement, right? Um, we're talking about an individual who knowingly, he says he's a student of history, that was his excuse, um, that he was there only to watch, you know, and, and experience history as it unfolded. But he decided to carry a shield bearing a symbol uh, call and uh, a statement that says Molen Lave, which means come and take it, which is a a Spartan um, thing, right? Meaning that he was there for war. Um, mm-hmm. He also had a helmet on, but most importantly, he was wearing two rings, right? One of which he claims is a Mexican Mexican sugar skull ring. That was his defense of the ring. But it was also, <laughs> uh, he was wearing it right next to a uh, German Iron Cross. Now the German Iron Cross has been used by Germany that it predates Nazism, right? Yeah, However, right. the combination of a skull ring and a German Iron Cross which was the, the, the hallmarks and the bearings and the identification of the SS, um, which as we all know, the SS was uh, one of Hitler's elite uh, brigades that essentially, uh, are, they were the architects of the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. They were the architects of, of, um, of uh, kind of the, the evils that existed in Nazi Germany. They were the ones who fulfilled all of the uh, actions, right? They're the ones who ran the death camps. So uh, as a student of history, one would think that uh, a principal of a school would would know that wearing something like that um, would immediately identify him as, identify his politics, especially if you're alongside, while you're wearing these things, you're hanging out with the KKK, you're hanging out with the League of the right. South, the group that I mentioned before, the Traditionalist Worker Party, all of these fascist and far-right leaning organizations. So he lost his job. I published the photos. I posted it on social media initially. Uh, I gained great traction immediately. Within days, he'd lost his job. Uh, He was infuriated, obviously. Um, And, uh, you know, a couple of years went by. Like, well, right after that, he gave a few interviews that said he would exact bloody revenge if he didn't have anything to lose, right? But he has a child, family, and all this. So he left New Orleans. He got run out of New Orleans and moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And about two years later, which was the statute of limitations, I received a knock at my door and uh, it was, I was getting served with uh, papers. He hired an attorney by the name of Augustus Invictus. Augustus Invictus, who renamed himself that, which means unconquered son, uh, glorious unconquered son, uh, who is obsessed with the Roman empire, hence the name. um, And also is one of the organizers of Unite the Right Charlottesville. Um, and also just openly one of the biggest Nazis on the planet, right? So he hires this guy as his attorney to prove that he's not a Nazi, but he hires one of the biggest Nazi attorneys in the, in the country, a person who's been defending, who's known to defend far right and, uh, and uh, people who are Nazi leaning. He sued me for $10 million, $10 million. Um, so uh, of course I was panicked. That's stressful. I mean, if I, the, 
ten million dollars, like I don't have ten million dollars. You wouldn't get it anyway. But like, you know, like nonetheless, right. I also don't want to be beholden to this individual for the rest of my life, paying some form of restitution. You know, so um, I w- immediately went to the ACLU. I went to the ACLU of New Orleans. I contacted um, uh, their uh, at the time legal director Katie Schwartzman and an attorney named Bruce Hamilton there, and they. Uh, we're like, yeah, we're taking this case. Like, don't worry about it. We got you. Right. So completely pro bono. Um, and um, they fought that case. I got to tell you, like their briefs were fantastic. First of all, the guy moved to Jacksonville, Florida and uh, was trying to sue me in Florida. Right. Because the, the statute of limitations had passed here in Louisiana. He had only one year in terms of defamation to be able to sue me. So he took it to Florida. They ripped that case apart. So terribly bad. Mm-hmm. Um and the, the, the icing on the cake for me was about a, a week before he was supposed to submit some really important paperwork for his, for his uh, complaint, his attorney, Augustus Invictus, was arrested um, <laughs> and locked up for being, um, for, you know, for domestic abuse, actually. He kidnapped his wife and uh, took her to Florida at gunpoint. Um, and, um, you know, cause he, he withdrew from the case, like, um, like really fast. And then all of a sudden the next day I saw that he had been arrested. Um, you know, I enjoy watching my enemies vanquished. Um, those who are enemies <laughs> to my people, I enjoy watching right. them vanquished. Um, right, so. <laughs> and I will always take great, I will always take great pleasure. I hope you hear this. I will always take great pleasure when those who harm my, my community are vanquished and you will continue to be vanquished as long as I exist. So. Um, it is, um, a pleasure to be sued by individuals who are, are harming my community. I will take that hit any day. Even if I got hit that $10 million, I'll take it any day because I'll never, ever not speak truth to power. That's real, man. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. I had, I had no idea that even happened, but man, goodness. Um, so we'll finally end with a a short word choice gang. Um, we'll, present two options and ask you to choose one, such as like low rider or smart car or And like then I have them. Oh, do you have them? <laughs> the, no, I don't have them. Okay, I have them. I have them. Come on, let me, right, cool. let me and it's just it's me. just just one word answers. Yeah, you just gotta choose yeah, yeah. one or the other. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. You gotta choose mm-hmm. one or the other. Um all right. Um Nikon or Canon. Nikon all day. Nikon. Okay. Um, <laughs> digital or film? Uh, only because the speed of which I like move digital, but film, that's a hard one. Digital. Digital. I'm going digital. digital. Okay. Yeah. And, um, okay. Placement of photographs, big agency placement or viral moments? Viral moments. They connect with the people. And there's, there's no barrier. There's no barrier. There's no agency on earth that can connect with people the way that like we can directly. So we off that now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I have an agency. I just recently got um, contacted by the New York times to be a freelancer. So like, I didn't have to go through an agency for that and did that by Mm. myself. Took 10 years, but like, you know, congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You're, um, Photos are are beautiful and really describe just the pain, the injustice, and um, you know 
they really, um, for some folks, like they really don't because of either where they live or what they're seeing, like they don't get to see that and they need to see it and they need to see it so up close in the way that, that you take them. And so, um, congratulations. That's a big deal. Thank you. And that like, is the only reason I do this. Like that, what you just said is the only thing I care about. I, mm-hmm. I want the work to resonate with people so that it changes our condition. Right. Like that's the only thing that matters. And just to jump back to Nick, Jim, Jim Knockway again, his photos have changed the course of wars, right? Like mm-hmm. they have, they have brought up about moments of peace in societies and like, when I saw that, I understood that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And that's what I feel my calling is, is to be a record, to be able to be a record keeper, to be able to show the world the injustice that exists and to do it in a way that resonates with people where it makes even my enemies want to change. Mm. Mm. I should. Um, how can people support you? Um, you know, I talked about... Uh, you know, what is the cash app? What's the Venmo? Yeah. Where, where are we sending uh, this love at? And so, uh, what, what are your handles? Where can people follow you? Sure. All of those things. So you can follow me on Instagram, uh, photo Aziz. That's P-H-O-T-O-A-Z-I-Z 504. Um, I'm really squeamish about like money stuff because I never want like people to feel like I'm in this for that because I'm not. Um, but I've I've been trying but, to but be better the about people, this. The people got to pay know, rent. Right, right, the people right. got to eat. Talk, talk. You know, the people need, need new right, cameras. Right, right. right. You know, I mean, it's real all. I do need a new camera, things. so yeah. yeah, yeah you gotta, love, you gotta let people so anyway, love on you. Yeah. <laughs> but Patreon. Somebody started Patreon for me right after Charlottesville, and I only had one supporter for the past three years. And then when this uh, all started up, and I now have like thirty, which is amazing. So. Um, you can follow me on Patreon or you can support me on Patreon. I believe my Patreon. I don't even know it. That's how much I don't. Let me see. Hold on. Damn. I think Look. it's. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait. We're going to have to um, edit this pause while he looks. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I think it's. Uh, no, it's just photo Aziz. So it's patreon.com forward slash photo Aziz. Um, and then Cash App is Aziz, like, you know, dollar sign Aziz. 504, A-Z-I-Z 504. That's the way that you guys could support me if you so see fit to do so. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we have to. I mean, this is what it's about, you you know? Uh, When I, I mean, so many people, I think uh, when we think about, um, you know, just like probably the person that comes to most folks mind is someone like Gordon Parks, mm. right? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not because I'm not Gordon Parks. Like that, that no, is no, like, no, no, no. I'm just saying like literally. if you like, yeah, yeah when you think yeah. about these types of things, you're like, oh okay, like Gordon Parks, you know, like right. bro, you a whole Gordon young Gordon Parks like, out here. I love look, I love <laughs> he's like my hero hero. Like I don't know if you guys are watching I'm just gonna plug for that show, but um Lovecraft country. Yes. Yo, there are like so many Gordon yes, Parks. Like, it's just so beautiful. It's like one of the most beautiful yes. like moments in this where you see all these. Look, iconic HBO doesn't, the, doesn't, right? doesn't yeah. sponsor us, but. No, not at all. You know. Not at all. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't even mess with HBO like that. I ain't subscribed, but, yes, but I did watch it. Like it is beautiful. But yeah, it is beautiful. But Gordon Parks is one of those like people that like I inspire to like do the same level of justice to the work like that, that he was able to bring into the world. So that's a huge honor to even like be mentioned in the same like. 
Yeah, we got to take care of you. With him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with thank us. You. We thank are honored to to have you and all of your stories uh, and your genius with us today. And so, um, too kind, too kind. <laughs> thank <laughs> so you. thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's Thanks. Me. All right. Peace. Okay, we are going to move into the juice this week. We know um, the juice came through. The yes. uh, it is serious. Um, the Democrats are really trying to, um, and we've seen Donald Trump shook because Joe Biden, somebody's uncle, not my uncle. I'll <laughs> fool him like that. Um, he ain't no kin to me. <laughs> Joe Biden announced that Kamala Harris uh, will be his VP running mate. And so, um, yeah. So uh, shout out to Kamala, but more so than, you know, because we do know that it is a historic moment. We do know that uh, and Kamala, you know, comma, that's how you pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then la. <laughs> comma, la. Uh, what did uh, people <laughs> To say there's saying? more, you know, <laughs> what you put yeah. out there, comma. Exactly. Uh, comma, la. Uh, she will be the first um, nominee who has graduated from HBCU. Shout out to HBCUs. She went to Howard oh, yeah. University. She will be the first AKA. Shout out to, yeah, to the AKAs. Uh, And, you know, she comes from, uh, she's black. And, uh, you know, the people keep talking about, is she black or is she not? Because she's Indian. No, she's very black. And you don't, you get to debate her on her politics. You get to (laughs) keep her accountable. But you don't get to actually question if she's black or not. She's black. She's definitely black. You know, different ship, different different stop, but definitely from the motherland. Jamaica is right there. So come on, kill that narrative. Yeah. And I know, you know, people are like, she's not from Oakland. She's not from Oakland. She's not from Oakland. Listen, we even get to debate that if you want. But what you're not going to debate is if she's black or not. So uh, her mother is Indian. Her father is Jamaican. Uh, but, you know, problematic class, uh, prosecutor, a DA, Mm-hmm. a you know attorney general uh mm-hmm. and now you know has been a senator uh for the last couple of years and so uh what i can say is she's much more you know problematic as hell but much more qualified than who we have in office right now absolutely absolutely i think the main thing and who we really want to uh say uh, and celebrate who has actually the real juice here is black women. Um, yes. Black women made this happen. Black women have carried the Democratic uh, ticket, politics, the strongest voting block that we know in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so shout out to well, Mary, all the black women. Go there, before we go there, we even have to go back to Harriet Tubman. Um, the abolitionist. We got to go back to Madam C.J. Walker for her political, you know, aspirations, and then also Sojourner Truth. So before we Come even on. get on the whole, you know, black women in politics, let's let's just start from where we came from. You know, these are black women that gave all of what they had for the 
for the development of others, especially, minor, you know, Blacks, but also other minorities, because, you know. Ooh, we don't say minorities on this show. We oh, say we yeah. are the global majority. The global majority. we are the global me. majority. <clears throat> Absolutely. Thank you for schooling me on that. But, no, it's, yeah. it's love. <laughs> but, yeah, shout out to us, one. And, yeah. you know, also, we know that... Um, while she is, the, this is a historic moment because this is the first black woman on a major party ticket. We also know that uh, mama or grandma, uh, Margaret Wright, right, was um, on a ticket in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We know Shirley Chisholm, mother Shirley Chisholm, right? We also know uh, most recently, you know, um, Cynthia McKinley, uh, Rosa Clemente, you know, were on that Green Party ticket. And so uh, Black women have always, always, always um, done what needs to be done for this country, for our people, for this ticket. And uh, and I can tell you, you know, I'm most inspired by that and know that we have work to do within the Brown community, know that we have work to do to solidify a ticket as strong as uh, Black women in that voter block. So, I don't know. I'm just inspired by um, creating a political powerhouse and know that there's a lot of work to do around creating accountability and, like, giving clear direction to what Democrats should be doing. Right. Yes, absolutely. Like, it's the tons of people throughout social media since the announcement has come for trying to, you know, downgrade her you know drag her Mm. through the mud but instead let's 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 get together collectively and strive to you know get on one accord so that we can push our agenda the a more efficient way like you know going on social media making your posts all of that i mean it's cool and all you know you have your voice but at the same time it's not the time for that Right about well, now. And don't be so revolutionary and don't have a voice <laughs> to where your voice is being used uh, to drag a black woman. That's still a black woman through the mud. That Absolutely. ain't, ain't nothing revolutionary about that. You can right. definitely critique her politics. You can, you know, uh, critique the party. And also understanding that in this country, you know, listen, we didn't flood the streets. We didn't, you know, millions around this world. Uh, to know that our savior, you know, I feel like Americans also, there's something we just love a savior. We want a savior. And like, we want the democratic party. We want politics in this country to save us out of this mess. And and it's not going to happen in that way. It's not going to happen. And the thing (laughs) about us waiting for somebody to save us. Yeah. We want somebody to save us, but we're not willing to hit the pavement as well. Like, look, what do we want? Tell them what we want. Don't just complain after they make a decision and, you know, uh, we have to deal with it. No, let's get up. Let's get up front in their faces, demand what we want and let's see what happens from there. But I'll tell you one thing. We're not going to get nowhere with Trump and Pence. And they showed us that for the last four years. So, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I think people can change. People can evolve. No one comes in. No one is born um, this great leader free of mistakes and whatnot. It's something you evolve into. So the more and more we hold these people accountable and give them opportunities to push our agenda, hopefully, hopefully, we'll be on the receiving end of some great things within the next four years. And 
the people will also say that we not for these evolving incremental change and incremental politics. And I think that's also okay, you know, because uh, we need to have these, all of these strategies moving at the same time, because, you know, uh, while we're working on, or I wouldn't even say working on, I think, you know, the here and now says, and I know for my parents, they can't lose their social security. <laughs> you wow. know, Trump ass talking about <laughs> social security about to be gone. Like, so I need, uh, you know, uh, a different leader in there who's not going to move on that. But is that going right. to make us free? No, absolutely no. not. We know that absolutely. at the end of the day, we need a real restri- uh, redistribution of wealth. We know that we really need to uh, figure out like, and well, not even figure out, but come to the place where we know capitalism isn't going to save us. Right. right? And, um, and so I think, you know, right now, the moment that we're in is yes, Kamala Harris is on that ticket and there's a lot of work to do. So lots of work. Yes. Let's make that shit happen. One thing I, I found interesting too. So, you know, people talk about, her record as a DA and how she sent people to um, prison and whatnot. You have people that have fell victim to her administration as a DA, so her prosecutors or whatnot, um, such as, say, Jamal Trulove came out in support of Kamala Harris because why he's focused on the bigger picture. So I think I really feel like we need to just come together Get on, get on one accord and just really try to push our agenda through what we have. Like, we got these cards. We either going to play with them or we're going to fold. And I'd rather play with them and see what happens rather than folding and continuing to fall victim to um, this white supremacist fascist that we have in the White House. Yeah. And I think there'll be a group of us you know, who will want to play with these cards. There'll be another group of us who will say we're folding because we're done and Mm -hmm. won't show up to the polls. And there'll be another group of us who will say we're going to fold, but we're going to be in the streets. We're going to uprisings will be happening. And I think all of those things can exist. And, you know, learning and and being a student of our history knowing that all things all those strategies have always existed and so now is a time to um i think the best thing we can do right now is seize the moment whatever strategy we're in make sure that you know we're learning so political education is huge it's critical it's key to how we're moving so that it can actually inform how we're moving and we just need to do what we need to do period let's go period <laughs> hello <laughs> <laughs> um so um we are going to move on to our rising ritual this week i want to share uh something that i've been doing recently that has really been helpful for me um, in New Orleans, as everywhere else, especially during COVID. But y'all know we love to drink. And so uh, we love to ride around the corner, just go get a daiquiri uh, or to go up and get a frozen margarita um, from Felipe's or wherever you get your margaritas from. Uh, and so that just happens to be my favorite place. Oh my God, they're so good. Uh, and this means that, you know, we have to also take care of our body. And so in addition to trying to limit our drinking, one of the things that I have found is 
dandelion tea. Dandelion tea, uh, yo, is <laughs> so clutch. In addition to uh, reducing water weight and, um, you know, really helping with your digestive system and uh, it actually prevents urinary tract infections. It also promotes your liver and your liver health. And so uh, as we're, you know, having those drinks and those drinks are flowing, we want to make sure that we're also taking care of our body. And so for me that this recently has meant having a lot of dandelion tea. Um, So yeah, I want to leave you all with that. And uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's uh, something we had a lot of fun doing. I want to thank Joe, my co-host for the episode and you all the listeners thank you for listening uh, to the black and brown get down subscribe and download on apple podcasts and spotify please leave us a review and rate us enjoy the episode and slide in our dms if you have any questions for us or you want to recommend a guest follow us on instagram at black and brown get down thank you see you soon